Hello, and welcome to the RCC Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are currently in week 12 of our Apostles' Creed series. This week's teaching is entitled, The Big C Church. Pastor Kenny teaches us that we are God's people, called to praise Him and live for His purposes. All right, and so we're going to focus today on the Holy Catholic Church, or what I'm calling the title of this message. Sometimes we refer to it as the Big C Church, the Big C Church. Church. You could turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. That's where we're going to be at. And as you guys are turning to 1 Peter chapter 2, I um, just want to kind of unpack these three kind of words that form this concept Holy Catholic Church. In the Bible, the idea of holy, holy, it doesn't mean like holier than thou. It doesn't mean that we're better than other people, that we're more pure or more perfect. I mean, we should be, as we spend more time with Jesus, we should be in process of becoming more and more like Him, which is more and more holy. That's why He says, I'm holy, so be holy, become more like me. But it doesn't mean that we've yet attained that. Somehow the church is a bunch of better people than than out there. We we know that from experience that that's not always true. Some of uh, the people who I think are the nicest people in the world aren't Christians, right? And some of the people who are Christians aren't the nicest people that I've ever met, right? That's the dynamic we face. And so what does holy mean? The idea in the Bible, when we say holy, it just means that it is set apart for God's purposes. Something that is holy is set apart for God's purposes. And so things that were in the temple needed to be holy. Why? Because they were set apart for God's purposes. The church is supposed to be set apart for God's purposes. And the word Catholic, it just it doesn't mean Roman Catholic Church. That's where I think some people get bothered. We're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. This actually is formed, this language is formed before the Roman Catholic Church even existed. So to think that the people that were writing the Apostles' Creed were talking about something that didn't exist is absurd, right? But it's talking about the universal aspect of the church. Or you might look at it like this. When we say the Holy Catholic Church, we're saying all Believers from all time, from the inception of the church in Acts chapter 2, all the way to when Jesus comes back and makes all things new, like in Revelations 21.5, the, com- the full number of, of people in the church throughout time is the Catholic church. It's all the believers, all the true believers. And when we say church, that's what we're going to kind of focus on today. And I want to begin our journey this morning with a quote about kind of defining the church from an old pastor who was a chaplain from World War II, uh, had, had been in the nitty gritty. He had seen some life. He had experienced much. And so he has much wisdom. I love reading anything that C.B. Cranfield writes. And he says, he, he describes the church like this. The church is the congregation assembled by the Holy Spirit's work of creating and sustaining faith in Jesus Christ. The company of those who believe in the one true God and who are His people, chosen and called by Him, not just for their own good, but for the good of all humankind. I love that last part. The church exists not just for themselves, but to display God's goodness in the whole world for all humankind. Here at Remembrance Community Church, we have four core ministry values. We, we like to operate with this perspective that everyone matters. 
the Bible, and when you see in the Old Testament, as particularly and in the New Testament, the, the, the society that they are speaking into was very stratospheric, right? There was this socioeconomic uh, expanses between all of the different poor people and, and to, all the way to royalty, right? And they would, you really couldn't jump those gaps. You were just born into them. And, and that was the world that they're speaking in. And, and, and what you see in the New Testament, we'll look at a little bit today, is that he, God somehow levels the playing field. In God's eyes, the playing field gets leveled to the point where farmers and fishermen become the, 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 the avenue that God's using to, to, to bring forth the church, right? The, the, the playing field is leveled. And so we look at it like everyone matters. There's no superheroes here, right? This church is not filled with superstars. We don't have an all-star team, right? You don't go to the end of the year and everyone gets to play and everyone gets a trophy, but then the special players get to be on the all-stars. We don't do that in the churches. That's not the way God operates. Everyone matters. And then we say everyone needs Jesus, right? And this is an unapologetic, um, maybe offensive piece that we, we have as a church, that we believe that everyone needs Jesus. We believe that everybody is a sinner. All of us are sinners. We all fall short of the requirement of what it looks like to have a relationship with God, to be good enough to have a relationship with God. We fall short on our own. And so we need Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And we like to say it like this. Um, sometimes people get offended by that. But I would say if you had a terminal disease... And, there, and you didn't know of a cure, and you just thought, this is terminal, and then somebody brought out a cure, right? One cure, there's one cure for you. Would you not be out of your mind thankful for that one cure? Would any of you guys go like, one cure, you're so judgy, right? You're so intolerant. How come I can't just pick whatever cure I want? No, there's one cure you'd celebrate, and we believe everyone needs Jesus and it's something to be celebrated. And that everyone has a part to play. You'll hear about that all the time. Everyone has a part to play. And then we say everyone is in process. Everyone is in process. None of us have arrived. We're all in process. A few weeks ago, Brittany was teaching and she, she brought up something that I thought was brilliant in regards to kind of understanding this, we're all in process. And she said, the process is not without purpose. And what she meant by that was, we're not, when we say we're in process, it doesn't mean we can just be, get comfortable with where we're at. It means that we are intentionally in process, in the process of becoming more mature in Christ. And we would say more mature in Christ looks like becoming more like Jesus. So everyone is in process, Amen. We're all in the process, and the purpose is we want to become more like Jesus. And then last week, we, we said we believe in the Holy Spirit. And we, we added to that. Everyone's in process. The process has a purpose, and the process comes with power. We're not left alone. We don't have to figure out how to do this on our own. We don't do this on our own. That God has promised to send the helper. The process is not without power. And then today I want to just add that a little bit further. The process is not without power and the process is not intended to be without the people of God either. So we have this process of becoming more like Jesus. We have power from God to accomplish that. And also we have each other and that's God's chosen path for us to become more and more like Jesus. We do it not as individuals, but we do it together. 
And we're going to kind of look at some things that Peter teaches us in 1 Peter chapter 2 about this being together, what this looks like. Uh, and we'll start from verses 4 through 12. 1 Peter 2, 4, 4 through 12. Now Peter's writing to a church in Asia Minor, probably modern like Turkey, and they're going through a lot of a struggle. Literally, they're being persecuted. Being a Christian in their world was not easy. It came at a huge cost. They would have probably asked questions like, like if I, I chose to follow God, I'm doing my best. Why is this so hard? Right? Why does it feel like I'm swimming against water when God is with me? Then who could be against me? Well, how come I feel the current against me? That's how they're feeling. And so he's writing really to encourage them. And in the first chapter, he's talking about kind of just our individual journey of what that looks like to follow Jesus individually. And then he quickly moves it and says, but you're not supposed to do it individually. You're supposed to do it together. And that's what chapter two is about. And so he says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. So who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. As we come to him, that's Jesus. By men, he's rejected. Was Jesus rejected by men? Would they have have needed that to relate to that as people who are feeling rejected by others? He's like, yeah, well, Jesus, that happened to Jesus first. But he's precious in God's eyes. Rejected by men, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. And then he says, you yourselves... Like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's from Isaiah 28. He's quoting the Old Testament. And he says, So the honor is for you who believe, but not for those who do not believe. So everyone needs Jesus, and there's a, there's a distinction. Those who believe and those who do not yet believe. He says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's from Psalm 118. He says, They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, or the day when Jesus comes back to make all things new, Revelation 21.5. So Peter reveals some dynamics about the church, and there's three particular ones that we want to kind of hone in this morning. We can't cover All of these. Here's Peter over 2,000 years ago trying to encourage us what it looks like to function and survive and thrive 
as Christians in community. And he's referring to all of these Old Testament passages. There's so much beauty packed into there. Matter of fact, if you were to open up 1 Peter 4, uh, 2, 4 through 12, and you open up the box, it would like explode out and you'd never be able to fit it back in. There's so much crammed into here, but we're going to focus on these three things that I think Peter highlights in, in, in their definitions or dynamics of the church. And number one is that we are his people. We are defined by the fact that we are his people. And building on that, we are worshipers. He has made his greatness known to us, it says. And so we should respond by being worshipers. We should worship. And then thirdly, we are to be missional. We have a purpose. We have a mission. We're set apart with a purpose. We're holy. And so he wants to make himself known through us. So here's this God who has called us his own. He wants to make himself known to us so that we would become worshipers. And he wants to make us known, himself known through us as we display his goodness to the world. Amen? Amen. This is kind of the big picture. And so I want to just kind of take these one thing at a time. And if you have a OCD, you're going to thank me in a moment because you get to fill in your first blank. You're welcome. And the first one is this, that we are, number one, a people of his possession. We're a people of his possession. Now, I would submit to you that every single one of us, it's just kind of a human thing that we all do at some point in your life or maybe many times in your life, and maybe even right now in your life, are asking the question, who am I? We ask it in many different ways, but we want to know who am I? And from that question, we're going to try to establish our identity, our value, and our potential. We're going to try to ask, who am I? And we're going to try to identify our identity, our value, and our potential. And some of the ways that we do this traditionally, and you may be outside of this box and that's fine, but we we ask questions like this, what makes me likable? Or will anybody like me? What makes me special? Is there anything special about me? What will make people see me? Or will people see me at all? These are identity questions. We're asking, who am I? And our value. Will people want me? What will they want about me? What can I offer or contribute? What will make me a a, a part of this? Uh, What will impress others about me? Is there anything that they'll find in me likable or acceptable? It's our value. And then our potential. What will I do with my life? We ask that question. Like, what am I supposed to do with my life? Will my life matter? What impact will I make? What legacy will I leave? See, there's potential questions. And as you can see, All of these questions, or at least most of these questions, are not bad in and of themselves. They're not bad questions to ask. But if you truly, deeply think about it, you'll understand that trying to find your identity, your value, and your potential in the things that the world is accepting is a futile mission. And it can lead to deeply unhealthy places. And it can lead to very dark places. This is where 
image issues spring out of. All of the image issues, eating disorders, uh, all of these types of things spring out of trying to answer these deeply profound and real questions on our own. Corrupt business practices are sprung out of this, trying to get ahead your own way, trying to make your mark on the world, and you start to compromise. I'll do anything to get it because I need to get these things answered. All of these things can lead you down very dark paths. Jealousy. Jealousy. Comparing ourselves to others trying to answer these questions. Or spending the best resources that you have at your disposal on things that don't really matter. Right? Some have said, I like to purchase things that I don't want so I can impress people I don't like. Right? And so there's this idea that striving for these things can lead us to deeply healthy, unhealthy places. And Peter teaches us, again, nearly 2,000 years ago, and pointing back to scriptures that are even farther back, and he talks to these deepest needs, I would say, in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, As the church we are called forth to set our confidence, not in who we are, but in whose we are. We find our answers to our deepest needs, not in trying to prove who we are, but trusting in whose we are. You are his possession. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. This is more than just, you know, how to fill out your your application somewhere, checkbox, I'm his people. This is foundational, deep, soul-saturated issues is what he's bringing out. And he says in this passage that our identity is in Christ. Watch this. In this passage, it says Jesus is a living stone. Jesus is a living stone. And then right after that, he says, for those of you who believe, you are now living stones. Why? Because of who you are in Christ. And then it says, Jesus is rejected by humans, right? He was God pleased, but he was rejected by humans. And then it says, and when they speak against you, Not if they speak against you, when they speak against you. You will be rejected by humans. If you try to let humans answer these deep questions, they will reject you. But Jesus was seen precious in God's eyes. He was rejected by humans. You will be rejected by humans. He says Jesus is chosen and precious. And then he says we are royal and beloved. And then he says... Jesus is valued and honored. We are chosen. We're his treasured possession, bringing from the language that he's using from Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7. You're his treasured possession. Our identity in Christ is a big deal. Our value in Christ is also a big deal. We have nothing to prove. If you have nothing to prove, well, then you're free to live for the glory of God because you're not out being busy trying to prove yourself and your glory. So that's settled. And now you can go beyond that. And you have true Christian freedom. You're free from trying to answer all these questions in the world. I would submit that freedom in Christ comes from not trying to answer these questions on your own, in your own ability, but being free from that so that you can be free to live for him and live for his glory. We have nothing to earn. So we are free to leverage our lives 
for his kingdom. We can celebrate when somebody gets ahead of you, right? Because them getting ahead of you doesn't put you at the bottom. It's already been, it's already been answered. You're already valued in Christ. And we have nothing to gain in this world. So we're free to pursue eternal things. Think about our potential. Our potential. I mean, he says so many descriptions in this passage that mean so much. We're living stones. That has great meaning. We can't unpack all of those. And so I want to hone in on one this morning. He says we are a royal priesthood. When he says we are a royal priesthood, I just want to, how many of you guys really can relate to that? I mean, how many of you guys have a king, know who the king of the United States is, right? We don't have a king, right? We watch Game of Thrones. That's our whole deal. That's how we know about it, right? We don't understand king language. We don't understand royal language. Priest, isn't that like at the Catholic Church? We have a pastor, right? We don't have priests. But to them, this has very significant language. And first, royalty. In those days, you, you could, not everybody could be royalty, Not everybody could be the king or a part of the king's. You have to be born into royalty. You didn't earn royalty. You were born into royalty. When he says you're royal, think about that. He's he's leveling the playing field. He's saying you, because of your relationship with Jesus the king, are now royalty. He levels the playing field and he invites you to step up into that. Ordinary people stepping into a royal inheritance. And he says that we're a priesthood. Again, not everybody could be a priest. You had to be from a certain lineage, from a Levite's tribe, in order to even be a priest. And he had to wait till you were 30 years old to start to kind of execute that. And he levels the playing field. He says, now you're royal priesthood. A priest is somebody who would, have, who, would have, who would have had access to go into God's presence on behalf of the people. And he says, now you all have access to go into God's presence. You're royal and you're priests. All of you, we're a kingdom of priesthood. Everyone has a part to play. Not just one special person gets to do certain things. Everybody invited, royal, and priesthood. This is a big deal. Think about your potential now. Think about the potential gained in having access to God. And having access to the kingdom as royal priesthood. It's a game changer. And so Peter in this descriptive language, is saying the church should not see itself lowly. Matter of fact, I would say this. The church should be described as the most humble people on the planet. We should be the most humble people on the planet. Why? Because we have nothing to boast about on our own. We didn't earn any of this status. We should be the most humble people on the planet. And at the same time, we should be the most confident people on the planet because he's given us full access to the kingdom. We're royal. And to him as a priesthood, we should be the most humble, not cocky. I think it's important that we understand. I'm not saying confident is not the same as cocky. Cocky is from being insecure. Cocky is what you do when you don't have all those other things answered and you're trying to answer them yourself by being cocky but we're meek like Jesus was 
Meek is the kind of person that has the capacity to fight back, but chooses not to. Not out of weakness, but out of meekness. Because all those other things have been answered in Christ, and now we're free from trying to prove ourselves, and we're, and we're confident in a beautiful way. And we're humble in a beautiful way. And I would say this. What this is saying about us, if we're His and we're royal and we're a priesthood, then we should be the most bold, adventurous people on the planet. Matter of fact, I would say, if you're a Christian and you are bored in your faith, you need to check under the hood of your faith. I've been through seasons where I've been bored as a Christian, and it's always been something going on with me. Right? Because God has called us to step out in faith. If that bores you, then you probably aren't stepping out in faith, right? Like getting in the boat is is not what Jesus illustrates in the story, right? Getting in the boat with everybody else, that's that's not the story. It's getting out of the boat and stepping on the water that made Peter's faith. You think that was a boring? Are you serious? Like, he probably just, everything in his life just, just shot through him. What is God going to call you to this year that you're not ready for, but he's going to call you to step out of the boat? That's how we should live our lives. Are you comfortable? Are you bored? He's probably calling you further, and I just want to remind you that it's okay to step out of the boat and to take steps of faith, and to start new ministries, and to, and to step into something new. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. If you're bored, it probably means you're not in the right spot, and you need to step out of the boat. That's the kind of language that... that and guess who's writing this letter? Oh yeah, it's Peter, the very guy who had that object lesson. He lived it, right? So Peter understands these things. So now that we're his, we understand that we're a kingdom of priests, that, that there's just, there's just an overwhelming uh, uh, encouragement to, to not live a boring life. The church should not be living a boring life. We shouldn't be stuck in here, you know, us four no more. None of us, like we're out in the community. I love laundry of love. Laundry of love is such a radical thing because you guys, you show up like the first week you showed up and you wonder like, is anybody even going to show up? Now people are lining up eight months later for laundry of love. Because why? Because people said, I'm going to step out of the boat. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm in though. Is, are you guys bored? Laundry of love, are you guys bored? Right? Let's, let's follow that example in all different aspects of our lives. So what does it look like to live as kingdom of priests? The next thing we'll look at is this. He calls us to be worshipers, and he calls us to be workers. He calls us into the mission to worship him because he's made himself known to us. Therefore, we worship him, and he's called us to be workers. He wants to make himself known through us as we live missionally, stepping out of the boat into society for the good of the people, blessing people, being kind to people, displaying his goodness. That's what he says at the end, right? I want you to go live such good lives that when they see your good lives, they're going to give glory to God on the day of his visitation. So we're going to be a people of praise. 
people of praise. Now, in 1 Peter 2.5, he says, You yourselves, like, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, the image here would have been of the temple, right? You're a spiritual house. That's talking about the temple. The temple in the Old Testament to these Jewish listeners would have been the place where God dwells. Think about that. Now, now people used to go to Jerusalem for pilgrimage. They used to go to the temple to worship God. And he's saying, now, you guys, each of you is a living stone. Imagine if I gave each of you guys a Lego. Just one Lego. I mean, Legos are cool. But just one Lego is really not a big deal. But then if I said, everybody come forward. And I want you guys, just put your stone. First, let's put Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. He gets the big one. Right? And then you guys just start building that stone. And then if, 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 we, if the Holy Spirit was working and we had some leadership and some organization, we might actually build something really cool, a cool thing. But it's each stone matters. Each Lego matters. You're, you're God's Legos that he's, that he's using to build a place where he's going to dwell. This spiritual house. So we're his temple and we're a priesthood. And here he says, before he says you're a kingdom of priests, and now we're also a holy priesthood. He says it twice. You're a holy priesthood, and you're, the ki- and you're a royal priesthood. So we're a holy priesthood. It means we're set apart for His purposes, and to draw near to Him. And also to help others draw near to Him. And we do this with evangelism and disciple making. And then he says, and we want to offer spiritual sacrifices or offerings to God. In other words, you, you are... You are, each of you is important, and together we come together and we make a dwelling place for God, where God is on display in His goodness, and our response is to be worship. What is worship? Some might say, oh, it's the singing part. That's, that's one way we can worship. But worship is ascribing worth to something that's worthy. We ascribe worth to something that's worthy in this place, to God who is worthy. And I would submit anything that we do in our lives, in our day-to-day lives, anything that we do in order or because of His worthiness, our awe of Him, our love for Him, anything that you do because you're radically in love with God is worship. If we sing With that attitude, it's worship. If we sing the exact same song and we don't have that attitude, guess what it isn't? It isn't worship. If we serve with that attitude, it's worship. Anything that we do, that's why in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul goes, you can eat or you can drink or whatever you do, but do it all for the glory of God. Do it all as an act of worship. It's why we do what we do that matters in worship. And so he calls us to be people who live this way in worship. And then Peter quotes from a passage that God gave to Moses in Exodus 19, 4-6. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What is he talking about? God parted the Red Sea and he led them across. And this, this image is, is that I freed you from the Egyptians and I led you like on eagles' wings. And he says, and I brought you to myself. Then he says, now 
Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. What is Peter saying? He's saying you should be marked as people who have seen what I did. You're people of remembrance. That's our namesake. People of remembrance. The reason why we're called remembrance is because we want to be a people who always remember how great our God is. Who he is. What he has done. What he has promised. And in light of that, we should live our lives different. Holy. Set apart. Different. With a purpose. We become holy when we recognize his greatness and live out of that. So he goes, remember what you saw me do. And then he says, and I called you to myself. Now you're my treasured possession. And I have a purpose for you. I, 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 he says, I'm the God of all of the earth, but I've chosen you. And I want to put you on display as you worship God. People see his greatness when, when they see his greatness displayed in the way that you're responding to his greatness. Does that make sense? When people see you living out his greatness, they see that and they go, wow, this person lives differently. Later, Peter in the same book is going to go, always be ready to give a, a reason for the hope that you have when people ask. So he's just, he's just imagining people are going to see your lives and go, wow, these people live differently. What is it that's motivating that? Oh, it's worship. Oh, it's their love for God. Oh, it's, their, it's, 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 it's whose they are. That's different about them. This is what it means to be worshipers, not just people who sing good and, and clap on, on, you know, on tune. That stuff's great. I'll never be one amongst you if that's a requirement for this church. But, but yet it's more than that. Scott McKnight, one theologian, says about the church, he says, the purpose of the church is to praise God and evangelize the world. And in that he means, means the whole process of, of, of sharing Christ with people and then teaching them to be his disciples. And then we'll, we're going to get to the last part in, in, uh, in section 3. We're, we're a people who are his. We're, we're a people of his, his possession. We're a people of praise. And we're also a people for his purposes. He says, once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the, of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Now as we prepare to sing corporately as a res- in a response to who God is as, as, as our singing worship, I want you guys to just start thinking about a few deep questions. And the first one is this. What would it look like for you to live as a person who has received mercy? What would it, what would it look like for you to live out your, your day-to-day life like you've received mercy. I would say the opposite would definitely be you wouldn't be an entitled people. 
We talk about that a lot uh, in our world today. The, the attitude of entitlement is des- like, I deserve, I deserve this. That's the opposite of mercy. You don't deserve this, but you've been given it anyways. Entitlement is the enemy of worship. Entitlement is the enemy of a lot of things. But entitlement is the enemy of worship. We need to lay down any entitlement. You didn't deserve nothing. Well, actually you do, but it's bad news. But rather you got mercy. And he's saying live as people who didn't have mercy, but now have mercy. And then it says, he, he, he kind of goes, what would it look like to live as people who have been adopted into God's royal family? Imagine, imagine we're, we're going we're gonna to partner with, uh, with the Royal Family Kids Camp this year. It's a camp that takes kids from the foster care system for a whole week, and it just, it just lavishes God's love on them. Gives them. The old goal is to give them the best week of their life. Imagine, this is what Peter's saying to us, though. I've got to do the Royal Family Kids Camp on several occasions, several years in a row. And it was always amazing. They come on Monday with all their shelters and all their defense mechanisms. By Wednesday, those have just dropped from a lot of them. They're just like different. They're free. They feel loved. They just, the camp atmosphere has completely changed. Of course, by Friday, they're, they're, they're gearing back up to go back into the real world. But Peter is saying, we should live like royal family kids camp and every day is Wednesday. Because everything's been changed for us because of who God is, what God has done, what God has promised. What would it look like for you to be one of God's royal kids? And then he says, Again, he's like, don't try to satisfy yourself by trying to answer some of these deepest questions like, who am I? Don't try to answer those with the world. He says, don't chase after the world's passions. Don't chase after the world's uh, uh, answers. Don't chase after the world's advertisements. Why? He says, because it will wage, it will wage a war on your soul. That's what he says in this passage. He goes, trying to answer these questions and and satisfy your deepest urges and passions with this world is waging war on your soul. And he's like, I've already won the victory. The war has already been, been, I'm I'm already victorious and I'm inviting you now into the kingdom uh, and to be priests, to worship me and and also to, to live as royalty with all the benefits of the kingdom. And I'm asking you, now that you don't have to go and prove yourself to the world, go and serve the world. And display my goodness. And this is what it looks like to be the church. To be a people who are His. Called to worship Him with freedom and joy. And responding to His mercy. And then acting that out on a day-to-day basis in every aspect of our lives. That's the work He's called us to. To to, to live such good lives. Day-to-day lives. That... That the Gentiles, the people who don't know me yet, will see my goodness. And we'll have the worship team come back up and follow this pattern. Once we've seen 
His goodness, what does that do? It, it leads us into his family, right? To believe. And he's saying, and we want more people to see my goodness. How is he going to see? How are they going to see my goodness? Well, because they see that you've seen my goodness and you're responding. And now they'll see my goodness through you seeing my goodness. And the goodness is just going to be spread like, like, like wildfire throughout the world. It's one person at a time. Like we become disciples and then what's our deal? Then we worship him and we learn how to be disciples. And then we go out and we make disciples. And then those disciples, what do they do? They learn to be disciples. And then what do they do? Then they make disciples and it's all pointing to Jesus. And this is the picture of the church. Thank you for listening to Remembrance Community Church Podcast. You can find all our weekly sermons online at remembrancecommunity.org forward slash sermons. Thank you for listening.